Hello, I'm Paul Eaton, and this is In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open exploration of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. Today's guest is Brian Burke. Brian is president and CEO of Praxis Capital, and since 1989 has acquired over 750 properties and currently has over $200 million of assets under management. Thanks, Brian, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about your path into commercial real estate? Wow. Yeah, boy, that was a humble beginning. Believe me, I started my path in single family, actually, and uh, I was a house flipper. So I was buying, fixing up and reselling houses. And uh, I was looking to uh, make it to the big time, as they say, and get out of uh, residential real estate and into commercial. And I didn't know anything about it at all. And so I, uh, I figured the best way to start was to go into multifamily because it was still residential, yet it was commercial. And so I had a, a real estate agent that was selling my flips for me, and he was a CCIM. And uh, I, I asked him, uh, I said, I'd love to buy an apartment complex, but I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't even know how to what to look for or how to read an income statement. He says, come on in my office. He sat me down in there and spent a couple hours kind of going through the, and showing me the ropes, learning how to uh, read an income statement and what to look for and about rent rolls and all this and that. And uh, it was a great education session for me. And then about, I don't know, a month later, he calls me up and he says, I got an apartment complex that I'm listing. Would you like to take a look at it? And I said, sure. So I did, made an offer and uh, even managed to convince the seller to carry back half of my down payment. And that was my entry into commercial multifamily. And once I got there, I never stopped. And that was a 16 unit building here in California. And 3000 units later, uh, I'm still going. In 2020, you written the book, The Hands-Off Investor. Why did you write the book and what is its message? Well, there were three reasons I wrote it. The, the first reason was, is I've been getting bugged by just about everybody I knew for at least a decade telling me I should write a book. <laughs> and I always held them off. But uh, finally, I couldn't hold them off any longer. It got to the point where uh, they won me over and I decided maybe I should give it a shot. The second reason was, I was talking to a lot of investors that were investing in our offerings. And the questions that we were getting asked were just kind of all the wrong questions. And I was realizing that even people that, you know, are sophisticated investors and accredited and uh, knowledgeable were asking all the wrong things. And I felt like there was, there was no resource guide out there to really teach people what the right things were to ask, what things to really be looking for. And I thought I could add some value there by filling in that knowledge gap. And the third reason was I had a friend of mine who invested in a private offering and lost her entire life savings when she invested with the wrong sponsor. And I felt like if I could educate people on how to do this the right way and prevent just one person from making a bad decision that cost them their life savings, then the whole exercise would be worth it. So those three things got together and nudged me enough to actually get that book done. If there is one issue that a passive investor should focus on, what would you think that would be? It's the character of the sponsor they're investing with. I mean, that really is the number one factor behind whether or not an investment will be successful or not is the character and the ability of the person behind that sponsorship group. Perfect example of that is the case of my friend. The reason that she lost her entire life savings is that the guy in charge of that syndication company was a crook. 
He was a convicted felon. He failed to disclose this in the PPMs, by the way. But he essentially raided all the bank accounts, stole all the money, you know, traveled around our private jet and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and the whole company failed. And it was a result of his incompetence and his, his criminal uh, tendencies. And so I don't care how good of a deal he may have bought or anybody for that matter, if the sponsor is a crook, the investment is doomed from the start. So really it's about sorting out the moral character, the track record, the ability of the sponsor that's in charge of that investment is the number one criteria that all passive investors should be looking at. I could not agree with you more. What steps do you think a passive investor should take to try to find a number of syndicators to choose from? Well, the first thing they need to do is get out there and look for enough people to screen. I have a whole little sub-chapter in the Hands-Off Investor that describes just how to find passive investors. Because let's face it, you're not going to find a billboard on the side of the freeway saying, you know, passive investors here, call this number. You know, and if you do, uh, I would recommend maybe considering not calling that number. <laughs> but. But generally speaking, these investments aren't advertised or they aren't advertised broadly. And that's in part because of a regulatory framework that they're using to raise capital. Some of those offerings are prohibited from advertising by their very nature. Others are allowed to advertise, but then there's other limitations placed on their capital raising efforts that some sponsors don't want to undergo. So therefore, that means that in some sense, there's a lot of word of mouth and referrals here. So the best step you can take is if you know somebody that's investing in passive offerings already is to get a referral from them to who they like. And especially if they have a lot of experience investing with multiple sponsors, who's their favorite? That would be the number one thing. Nothing is better than a referral from someone that's experienced with investing with someone. Aside from that, the next thing is, you know, go to conferences and meet syndication sponsors at conferences, listen to podcasts. A lot of the guests on podcasts and a lot of podcast hosts themselves are syndication sponsors or no syndication sponsors. And you can really get to know a lot about what someone or how someone thinks if you've heard them on various podcasts answering some very pointed questions about how they uh, started and how they operate their business. Going uh, to uh, meetups, uh, online forums, biggerpockets.com. There's places all over the place out there for people to go to to run into sponsors. But the one thing is for sure, you know, they won't just be coming to you because you have money. You know, they, you have to seek them out and find the best ones. This book is, in a sense, a best practice for investors to use or resource guide to find the right investments. And I would think that it would be good reading for syndicators as well to understand what the right investors are looking for and how to shape your operations, your investments, how you reach out to them to put your best foot forward. It's funny you say that because when, uh, when I pitched the idea for this book to the publisher, uh, biggerpockets.com, and you know, a lot of their audience is active real estate investors. And here's a book on how to invest passively. So it seems on one hand, a bit counterintuitive for them to want to publish this book. But as part of my pitch to them, I said, look, if you're beginning to take a class and you knew that at the end of this class, there was going to be a final exam, do you think that you would do better on that final exam if in the very beginning of the class, you saw all the test questions and all the answers? And I think most anybody would say, yeah, they would probably ace that test. And 
In the world of passive investing, as a sponsor, the proctor of your final exam is your investor. They're going to be making the decision whether to invest with you, and whether they invest or not is going to make the decision as to whether or not you're successful in raising capital and acquiring real estate. So they, that is your final exam. And if you know what questions your investors are going to ask, you'll be better prepared to have answers for them. And I don't mean that there's a script. I don't mean that you have a canned answer. It means that you know they're gonna ask this. So if this isn't something you're doing, start doing it. If it's not something you're providing, start providing it. Step up your game because this is what investors expect. And I think that, uh, that sponsors can get a great message out of kind of reading this book and learning about passive investing from quote unquote, the other side. Speaking of that, it seems like in the last three or four or five years, one of the largest changes that sponsors are seeing is the rise of online platforms for crowdfunding of real estate. What are your thoughts about these types of platforms where the industry is going? Well, a lot of thoughts. They're necessary, they're dangerous, they're incredible, and they're a waste all at the same time. And, and you know, how can you be all of those things at once? Uh, that's the world of crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is dangerous because people think of passive investing like buying something on Amazon. You, uh, you search what you're looking for, you get a menu of options, and you pick the one with the lowest price or the highest number of stars or whatever. And this is the same thing on crowdfunding sites is they get a, a grid of investments to look at and they look and they pick out the one that has the highest projected return and they say there's the best one and they invest in it which could be the biggest mistake they'll ever make because a projected return is meaningless without understanding the methodology that was used to arrive at that projection and, and that's one of the things the book spends a lot of time going into so it's it's dangerous from that respect it's a waste from the respect that if there's an intermediary, such as a crowdfunding site, they're obviously there because they're making money somehow. Well, guess who they're making money off of? They're making money off of you. They get a piece of your uh, investment return or they get a fee or they get some kind of rip that enables them to have this platform and you could just invest direct with the sponsor and eliminate the middleman. They're necessary because some people just have nowhere else to turn to find passive investments. And the easiest thing they can do, and maybe the only thing they can figure out how to do, is to go to a crowdfunding website and find investments that way. And maybe paying a rip off of their uh, return is worth it. Maybe some fees is worth it to them. And maybe they're savvy enough to uh, look what's behind the curtain, so to speak, to sort out, you know, the one with the highest return might not be the best deal. So in that case, the crowdfunding platform adds a lot of value for people. So it's, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. You know, there's good and bad that comes with anything. And there's, there's good things that crowdfunding platforms bring to the space. And, and there's also some, some negatives. So you have to balance all that together. It's almost sometimes dangerously easy to make these investments through a cloud platform. In fact, the number one point, and I agree with you, of making a decision on an investment is talking to the sponsor. But often in these platforms, you look at a matrix and you choose based on what is you think is the highest return. And I think that if people don't have the connections to find a number of sponsors, maybe the best solution is a REIT investment as opposed to going through a cloud platform. But I don't want to say that I, I don't think they're good platforms. I think there's a lot of, of great opportunities and I like to see this innovation, but I do think that 
there are some concerns, legitimate concerns about that type of investment. Yeah, I call it point and click investing, mm-hmm. right? You find the investment, you point, you click, you hit wire and you're done. Yep. And it does make it very easy. And in fact, some cases, perhaps too easy. And uh, certainly that is true. Do they add value for some people? Absolutely. Is it dangerous? Absolutely. You know, I always tell people to treat real estate investing like the loaded weapon that it is. It is a tool that can save your life and it is a tool that can kill you. So treat it carefully. And uh, if you do that, you'll be all right. So how do you source in your deals? You know, we filter through CoStar every day. We're out with the broker community. And it seems that it's getting, I mean, obviously it's getting harder and harder to meet our targets. How are you finding your deals? Geez, isn't it ever? It is increasingly difficult. And right now I would say we're not finding many deals. Right now we're finding ourselves as a net seller. We're actually selling a lot more assets than we're buying. I think we'll sell a thousand units this year and we'll be lucky if we buy 300. You know, the only, we have one property in contract right now and it was sourced off market through a broker. We were bidding on another asset in that market and we didn't get it. We got outbid by somebody else and uh, we kind of kept after the broker and kept, you know, <laughs> telling him we're, we're still here. And uh, he brought us an off market opportunity that we actually liked just as much, if not even more than the one that we were bidding on originally. So, you know, everything that we buy comes from relationships, whether it's um, a, a seller that we know, a broker that we know, it's always some relationship that we're leveraging there. And, and that really is kind of the way this stuff gets done. We have a low hit rate on deals that are marketed on the open market, and we have a much higher hit rate on marketed deals, or uh, I'm sorry, off-market deals. And um, and really that's that's about it for us. Yeah, we, we do the same thing of pouring through CoStar and you know, cold calling owners and that sort of thing with, with pretty dismal results, but the brokers and that broker relationship is really where the rubber meets the road. So I think you invest across the Sunbelt states, is that correct? Yeah, we're Arizona to Florida and everything in between. Yeah. And you've brought your management in-house, is that right? We did, yeah. We used to have, use third-party management companies in all of our local markets, but now we have our own management company and we manage our own portfolio internally. We do the same. And what are the challenges having in-house management for such a broad diversity across uh, locations? Well, uh, if you were to get the uh, president of my management company uh, on this podcast, you'd probably get an earful and uh, it would be a four hour long podcast about the challenges because he's uh, probably spends many, many more nights in a hotel room than he does in his own bed. And it is, you know, just part of the drill when you have a portfolio that's diverse across the country and various markets. It means for some folks in the organization, a lot of travel, but it also means leveraging technology to the maximum extent possible. And, and, you know, that comes in the form of enterprise grade property management software. It comes in from really sophisticated uh, live video streaming capabilities and security cameras and allow us to see a, a large portion of our properties from anywhere without even having to travel to them so we can check up on how things are going at any time of the day or night. It comes from having a very experienced team who's been doing this for a long time. The uh, president of my management company has been in this business over 40 years. He's managed you know, over 60,000 apartment units for a number of large household name institutional shops that have had national portfolios. So it's kind of 
old hat. It's not for the uh, uninitiated and it's not for the inexperienced. It definitely takes a lot of um, preparation to be able to uh, handle a, a task like that. It is a challenge. However, you know, we do all our management in-house and it is tremendously helpful, both from incentives of your management, from the amount of information you have, the transparency and your relationships with the tenants. If you have the resources, it's certainly the best path to take. Yeah, being able to set your own corporate culture is important. And, you know, it's impossible to set a corporate culture enterprise wide if your properties are run by a variety of third party management companies. And, you know, third party management companies are great at what they do. They're an invaluable resource. I can't say enough good things about how important third party property management companies are. Uh, but there's still nothing that beats having complete control, soup to nuts, of your entire operation. We have full integration of accounting. We have full integration of property level data. We have business intelligence software that enables us to look at KPIs across the entire portfolio, and it's the portfolio as a whole. Those are all things that are difficult to assemble when you have fractured management and having it all under one umbrella really does make a difference. And setting that corporate culture is really important for uh, creating a brand. Looking forward as we come out of COVID, where do you see the opportunities for sponsors and for uh, passive investors? Well, there's uh, opportunity is difficult to come by right now. Uh, investors are seeking yield. So there's a lot of capital out there chasing opportunity. There's not a lot of opportunity out there to be chased. So you have sponsors tripping over one another and bidding each other up to the moon. And there's just not enough product to go around is really where we're at right now. So, you know, my philosophy is that it's not about who creates the most opportunity or who uncovers the most opportunity. It's really about who is buying with the most safety and the most insulation from risk. So who's going to survive over the long term, I think is what's even more important. So in a you know hair on fire environment, everybody is chasing yield and everybody's going out on the risk curve and taking all sorts of chances to maximize return. To me, that's a time to take a step back, realize that you're going to get lower returns, but you can do this in a way that will ensure that on the other side of any kind of adverse event, whatever that may look like, you'll be one of the survivors. And I think that to me is more important than uncovering opportunity right now, is being the survivor on the other end of all of this, whatever all of this is, because none of us know exactly what the future holds. All I know is that I want to be standing in the future and I don't want to be uh, the one you know, on the phone to my bankruptcy attorney. Yeah, first lesson for a sponsor, don't lose your investor's money. That's uh, rule number one, and rule number two says see rule number one. And you know, a knock on wood, I'm fortunate after, you know, 20 years of uh, investing with other investors' money, I've not lost a nickel of principal yet, and and don't intend to start anytime soon. So that is absolutely the golden rule. If you don't lose people's money, you'll have a lot easier time in this business. Those who lose people's money have short careers. Wise words. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And we'll put your uh, contact information in the show notes. How about that? That sounds great. Love to talk to any of your listeners who are interested in learning more. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode 
of in-depth commercial real estate.